Hello, and welcome to the So What podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues that ask the obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly and Travis Buchanan. Well, as always, we'd like to thank you for listening to the So What podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at sowhatpodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episode can be submitted by emailing hello at sowhatpodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at sowhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for the So What Podcast. So when we speak about the Reformation as Protestants, we typically frame it in positive terms. Luther's 95 Theses was issued as this sort of clarion call for Christians to return to the core of the gospel, salvation by God's grace alone through faith in Christ alone. But if you know anything about the story, you know that it's not all sunshine and roses. Reformation was a movement that involved people, and because it involved people who are sinners— there is going to be issues that come up. That said, there must have been some kind of unintentional consequences or collateral damage from the Reformation. So, gents, what do you think was some of the most costly damage that comes from the Reformation? Kevin Van Hooser wrote that when people say that they regret the Reformation, it is often sola scriptura that they have in mind, for they draw a straight cause and effect line from sola scriptura to church divisions. So as we've been looking at the solas of the Reformation, maybe we should start there. Sola scriptura. With sola scriptura Mm -hmm. as a, a cause of many of the subsequent collateral damage that you mentioned. Tell us. Having to do with the Reformation. What is sola scriptura? Good. Thank you for setting me up with that, Matt. (laughs) The Reformation principle of sola scriptura or scripture alone is an affirmation related to authority as it was originally intended. So you think of Luther's 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door. There's a question of authority there that comes up. However, the Protestant distinctive of scripture alone is perhaps the most problematic and contested of the solas or perhaps the most difficult to retrieve today. The objection to it may be stated like this, and this is how it was put by a Catholic writer, Devin Rose. No honest religious historian can deny that the result of sola scriptura has been doctrinal chaos. And if that is a Catholic perspective, the Eastern Orthodox view could be said to be even less positive. Georges Florovsky referred to sola scriptura as the sin of the Reformation. Christian Smith, in his book, The Bible Made Impossible, blames the principle of Scripture alone for doing just that, observing how even those who adamantly affirm the principle cannot reach agreement over its consequences and implications. And I know Matt can maybe share something from his his Methodist context to that in a little bit, to that very point. Brad Gregory goes further and charges Sola Scriptura with unintentionally creating the conditions for the hyper-pluralism in Western society today. Not only did the Reformers disagree over things like the Lord's Supper, they also disagreed over the criterion for distinguishing what was essential from what was inessential. And these exegetical and doctrinal and methodological disagreements turned into ecclesial divisions. Sola Scriptura turned out not to be a uniter, but a divider. Or at least, as Van Hooser writes, that's the prevailing narrative on the academic street. Is he right about that? Well, 
what he would say in his chapter, and I'm, I'm speaking somewhat here in the beginning from Kevin Van Hooser's book, Biblical Authority After Babel. It was a 2016 book, and he talks about the subtitles, Retrieving the Solas in the Spirit of Mere Protestant Christianity. So he is about the retrieval of these solas and their proper understanding and employment today as a way to define mere Protestant Christianity, if you will. And what Van Hooser says is required to absolve a normative Protestantism of this apparent historical sin is to situate the principle of sola scriptura or of biblical authority in the broader pattern of theological authority. So the first step in this process would be to determine what the reformers originally meant by sola scriptura. Did they have in mind the hyper-individualism of today? Is that what they intended? Is that what they meant? Or to distinguish rather more precisely in what sense is scripture alone? So here's Van Hooser's summary. Read a, a few sentences here. The legitimacy of the Reformation stands or falls on Luther's judgment that scripture alone contains all things necessary for salvation communicates them effectively, compels one's conscience, determines doctrinal truth, and commands the church's allegiance above all other earthly powers and authorities, including councils and popes. To anticipate, it is not that Scripture is alone in the sense that it is the sole source of theology. Rather, Scripture alone is the primary or supreme authority in theology. Scripture alone excludes rivals such as the teaching office of the church and church tradition when it comes to the role of infallible authority or magisterial authority, if you think of the Catholic Church. It does not eliminate other sources and resources of theology altogether. That's an important point. Mm -hmm. The challenge for those who wish to maintain sola scriptura is to locate it rightly in the broader pattern or economy as the primal and final, but not the sole authority. So sometimes people misinterpret sola scriptura as all I need is my Bible. I don't have to read what other people say. I don't need scholarly opinions. I don't need to read a commentary or a book on theology. Me, my Bible, that's all I need. And, You're telling us that's not what it means. And the Holy Spirit in me as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, also, right. goes without saying Holy Spirit, right? But, but so you're telling us those folks have misunderstood the Reformers. Or yes. at least Van Hooser. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I would agree with Van Hooser that if we are going to retrieve a principle of sola scriptura as a sort of basis of our Protestant faith, then... Yes, we acknowledge that that's how it's parsed out sometimes on the popular level. However, that's not what was intended by this principle. And if we were to use it responsibly and to appeal to it responsibly, then we need to do some clarifying about what it means and what it does not mean. So, sola scriptura means the Bible is the final authority. Are there other authorities? And if so, how do they relate to scripture? Yes, and yes. So, that, <laughs> that would entail... That becomes a long and much more involved matrix of ideas and things. So if you think of the Wesleyan quadrilateral, for example. I'd rather not if that's okay. Which Alistair McGrath in his main text on theology calls the four sources of theology. He mentions scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. As a footnote there, that term was coined by a guy named Albert Outler. And he has uh, later recorded as saying he regrets coining it because it has been profoundly misunderstood. Proceed. Yeah. No, that's fair. I only bring it up to say what Van Hooser was saying in this quotation is, Scripture alone does not mean Scripture is the only source of our theology and yes. the only resource for our right. theology. And that's something that we brought up on the show quite often. I think even in the first series that we did, 
we had Michael Haken on talking about historic theology, and he made the distinction between sola scriptura and nuda scriptura. Nuda scriptura being Bible only, and sola scriptura being the highest authority is Scripture. And I think that's what we're talking about here, is the confusion between those two thoughts. So we want Scripture alone, not naked Scripture. Yeah, I think Timothy George said that he when said he was and, yeah, yeah, right. making that distinction. Right, so we, we want to draw a distinction there. So it's really an argument over authority. And so let's put it back in Luther's context. He's saying, look, we have church fathers that we appeal to as authorities, but what happens when the church fathers are in conflict? Where do we go to arbitrate those theological discussions? Well, the councils, right? I mean, the, the church fathers themselves are not authoritative. In their, I mean, they're influential and they're very important, but um, Augustine would have less authority than an ecumenical council. Right? Yes. So that adds another layer. So I bring up the fathers as the tradition piece. How many layers are there? <laughs> fathers and creeds are part of the tradition, yeah. which is the main beef with Rome at the time is what's going to, and then subsequently after Trent and the Counter-Reformation, is what is the Christian going to look to as the authoritative, the primal source of authoritative revelation from God about faith and practice? So there's an appeal to scripture and tradition as developed through the fathers, through the councils, or there's an appeal to a prioritizing or at giving a, a role of primacy to scripture that Luther and the reformers argued for, which would make councils and popes and subordinate to that. So would a Roman Catholic really say, though, we've subordinated scripture to the magisterium? Is that fair? Well, the magisterium— I don't think they would say it like that, no. According to the Roman Catholic catechism, the Pope has to stay subordinate to things that have been said in the past and Scripture. Primarily, Scripture, I think, is, is exactly the wording, that he can't wander away, for example, from Scripture. Right. If I understand correctly, a Roman Catholic position would be Scripture is the authority— and the magisterium, the living voice of the church, gives us the authoritative interpretation of Scripture. Is that a fair way to put it, without a Roman Catholic in the room? Yeah, I mean, I believe the magisterium functions as the authoritative interpreter right. of Holy Scripture for the church, right. so that what it declares is essentially God's word for how the faith is yeah. to be conducted yeah. in the church yeah. throughout here, the world. Here it is. The magisterium is not superior to the word of God, but is its servant. It teaches only what has been handed to it, and that's in the catechism of, of the Catholic Church. But as was helpfully pointed out to us on the show before by Dr. Calstado, you have scripture, tradition, and magisterium, that three, I think he right. described it as like a three-legged stool. And so you can see throughout— Trilateral. Yeah, you can see, <laughs> you can see how, through history where magisterium has abused even sure, this sure. this doctrine that the church has produced itself. But I, I guess my point is, it gets to the kind of it clarifies the issue in that it's not just a matter of authority, but it's a matter of authoritative interpretation, yeah, right. right? Because every text requires interpretation, every word requires interpretation. So the difference between Roman Catholics and Protestants is Roman Catholics have a group of people who define the authoritative 
interpretation, Protestants locate the individual in that place of authority as the final arbiter of the authoritative interpretation of Scripture. And one of the results is, if we're in fellowship together and I don't like your interpretation and it's a big enough issue, I'll just go. That's right. Or I'll try to get rid of you, and we can even start a new denomination, Mm -hmm. and you'll have First Church of Fred around the corner and roll with it. So how do we how do we navigate the questions of authority there? I guess is kind of my question. Or do we at all? <laughs> yeah. And I think how the magisterium is discussed today takes on a different tone yeah, since the Reformation right. also. That's right. Because that critique is now present for them to respond to. In the 16th century, it wasn't stated as ecumenically or ironically, perhaps, as it is today. And I'll just quote one response to the 95 Theses from someone named Sylvester Prairius, I don't know how to pronounce his surname. He responded saying, whoever does not hold fast to the teachings of the Roman church and of the Pope as the infallible rule of faith from which even Holy Scripture draws its strength and authority is a heretic. Mm -hmm. That was the counter argument being levied against Luther in his 95 Theses at the time was even the Pope is above Scripture. And if you disagree with that, you're a heretic. Yeah. Interestingly, I mean, so, well, a couple of things. In terms of the so what question, you know, someone may be listening and thinking, okay, here they are arguing about these Latin terms from 500 years ago. What does it have to do with anything? Well, just this week, a group of United Methodists introduced a movement or an organization called Uniting Methodists. And the language there is important because the United Methodist Church is in a pretty strong conflict and is deeply divided over the issue of questions related to human sexuality. And the uniting Methodists position themselves in the middle, though folks on either side of them might disagree with just how middle they are. But they sort of put themselves out there saying, we're centrists, we're in the middle. And by being in the middle, they want to take no stance whatsoever on the issue of human sexuality in terms of same-sex attraction and practices. And they say on their website, and this is this is to illustrate why the question of interpretation authority is important. Mm -hmm. They say on the website, I don't want to debate the questions of uh, same-sex activity, but here's what they say. Quote, we believe our differences, United Methodist differences, on the questions of same-sex marriage and ordination stem from differences over biblical interpretation, not biblical authority. Exactly. So there's the rub is they know to remain good Protestants they need to acknowledge the authority of the Bible. Because if you say the Bible's not authoritative or no longer authoritative for me, well, then you've obviously distanced yourself from the Protestant church and the Christian church in general, because the Catholic wouldn't say that either, obviously, or an Orthodox believer. So we can just levy everything on interpretation then and say, yeah, of course the Bible's authoritative, but it needs to be interpreted. And so therefore- There's a very broad range in which we can, and I think most people, even outside of the church, just know this. They pick this up because they've seen its fallout in American Christianity to take our context. So we have the authoritative word of God. Does that mean women should be ordained as elders and preachers? Does that mean the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father only or the Father and the Son? Did Jesus descend into hell? These last two examples are are things taken up in our ecumenical creeds Mm -hmm. that have divided the church in the past. Does that mean we agree on the mode of baptism or its timing? 
Do we agree on the nature of the Lord's presence in the Eucharist? Some of these things are very important, yeah. significant. They're not just, you know, what color should the carpet be in the lobby, which yeah. is something that divides churches as That's well, right. sadly, in yeah. our country, or whether we should have hymns or, you know, an acoustic-led passion-style worship on Sunday morning. The carpet question is resolved in Third Peter. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm acknowledging that there is a legitimate critique to be levied against Protestant Christianity in America because lots of people appealing to an authoritative Bible cannot agree on some fairly important things when it comes to how the church should be organized and carry out its ministry or even what's happening during the worship service. So that's where I kind of want to just for the sake of discussion, step in and play the devil's advocate, right? <laughs> devil's advocate for the Roman Catholic church. No, uh, Luther would appreciate <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, he would definitely. I don't know, nothing implied, nothing implied. But yeah, so, I mean, given the state of Protestantism with denominations abundant, tens of thousands of denominations all over the place, doesn't that practically demonstrate that sola scriptura is incoherent and just not practical? Does it necessarily lead to a fractured church? Yes. Well, we can say that it has historically. Yes. It or something has. Is that yes to I all those it, questions? I think or it's just different the last than one? just saying that that is the cause. I think there's maybe connections, especially when we begin to think about the collateral damage that sola scriptura gets taken beyond perhaps its original intent, and that one of the beautiful parts of the Reformation with Sola Scriptura was bringing down an understanding and at least wrestling with what is it, what does it mean that Scripture is our authority, and that there was a lot of work on trying to define those things doesn't mean we have all of our confessional alignments perfectly characterized, but yeah. So I guess, and, and again, the same question comes up in some ways, because I made this case to a friend of mine who has sort of moved from the Protestant position to the Roman Catholic position. And I said, well, we have doctrinal statements. We have the creeds. <laughs> in Methodism, we take John Wesley's standard sermons as doctrinal statements, right? So you got 50 some odd sermons that are considered doctrine, right? But again, they're texts that have to be interpreted and the Roman Catholic would come back and say, we have a living voice that speaks authoritatively and doesn't need to be interpreted because it's not a text. It is, it tells us what to believe and what to do, and we need that. And that's really helpful for, <laughs> oh, for, so, for <laughs> removing controversy at the official level and so or you at, may, the, uh, at the highest level. Let me, let but, me be the Protestant but, advocate, though, for a moment. When an encyclical is written, that being an official writing from the Pope, are you saying then that that doesn't need any interpretation at all? So I threw that back at my, my friend when we had this discussion. I said, well, once the magisterium issues a statement, it becomes a written document in need of interpretation. Right. And his response was no, because they're still there alive to tell you whether or not you get them right. Ah, okay. You always have a living voice. Right. And so if you kind of, like, we don't have Paul to tell us whether yeah, or yeah, not yeah. we got Romans right. The holy grail of interpretation in the Protestant at least tradition is authorial intent in the modern. Yeah. But I so mean, they're saying if the authors are living, then we don't need you don't to. Need, you don't have to. Their quit. intent is not a mystery. If what they've written isn't clear, we can ask them for further right. clarification. I mean, like we, you, the disciples could go to Jesus and say, What did you mean by this parable of the soils? Because it wasn't clear to us. And yeah. then he gives an explanation exactly. to them for it. Mm -hmm. Timothy could go to Paul and say, Hey, that whole thing in Romans, nobody got that. What are we what are we talking about here? <laughs> you know? So the the conversation shifts. I don't mean to cut you off, Carl. Do you have something? No, 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 no. Yeah, I, I was just gonna put So pull the it conversation back to... then shifts 
after we established the authority piece at the beginning of what Sola Scriptura was referring to, to the issue of biblical interpretation, and how then do we arbitrate between all these various interpretive voices? Mm -hmm. Because now we have, potentially, as many interpretations as there are interpreters. Individual voices. Yes, the democratization of uh, Bible interpretation, which is tied into the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer, right? We're decentralizing power in the church. We're divesting popes and councils with ultimate authority and placing it in a in this recorded word from God that then requires interpretation. But we're also decentralizing the priesthood to a degree to say every believer has access to God in Christ and doesn't need the mediation of a priest. Every Christian because of the Holy Spirit. So we got to talk about the Holy Spirit that's before right. we're done because yes. that's a key piece. But you remember the reformers had, were fighting a war on two sides. They had the Roman church and the traditionalists on the right, if you will, and they had enthusiasts on their left. I don't know if it's not right and left politically. So I'm just saying right and left, you know, to give you two sides, but on the left are the enthusiasts who are talking about private revelations and, you know, some of that individualism that you see of, I just need the spirit. And that's all. Hyper-individualism to the point where essentially they were starting cults with like in Mulhausen with Munzer and the Peasants' Revolt, this apocalyptic preaching and saying, you know, I've got a direct connection to the Holy Spirit. I'm the only one that can interpret this text, so why don't you come start a theocratic community with me and we'll, we'll go to war with the earthly governments. Yeah. It's a very dangerous road you can walk It happened down. in 19th century America. It happened in 19th century America. Yes, this is very true. With uh, your, referring to with your Mormon friends, right. yes. So, in an effort to throw off authority that had overgrown its proper boundary. They weren't throwing off all authority. In a decentralization of church authority, they were not removing the church as an essential ingredient in the Christian life or in the process of biblical interpretation. So all I'm saying is the conversation then begins to shift, not just from matters of authority to matters of interpretation. How should the Bible be read? How did Jesus teach his disciples to read the scripture? How do we know we're being faithful to the Lord in the way that we read scripture Mm -hmm. and interpret it. And issues like clarity, sufficiency, the principle that scripture interprets scripture. What is meant by some of those things? 